Well, good morning. Well, we will be returning this morning to our study in the Gospel of Matthew, in Matthew chapter 8. And so you can go ahead and turn there in your Bibles. On October 31st, 1938, Orson Welles woke up to find himself one of the more talked about persons in America. Or so the Smithsonian says. I wasn't around then. Previous night, Orson had overseen a dramatic telling or retelling of H.G. Wells' War of the Worlds. And it had been done in such a way as if to report it actually happening. Persons tuning into Wells' radio program the night before would have heard what sounded like news reports telling of a Martian invasion of New Jersey and the devastating effect it was having upon the populace. Apparently, a lot of people bought it. He did a good job. Uh, created panic with many persons across the country with anxious phone calls to police, newspapers, offices, and radio stations. Now we may chuckle a bit at the idea that persons would believe such a thing, that aliens from Mars were invading New Jersey. And yet there's a much greater delusion going on today that's affecting millions of persons. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 4 that the God of this world, that is Satan, has blinded the mind of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. John in his gospel tells us that Jesus was the light of life and that the light shone in the darkness, but the darkness of this world did not, would not, did not want to comprehend it. The Jewish nation and the people for years leading up to Jesus' ministry, had been taught by their religious leaders that their Jewishness and maintaining their Jewishness through certain external rituals was enough to guarantee entrance into the kingdom of heaven. But when Jesus arrives, he upturns this thinking. He seeks to pull back the curtain and expose this great lie, this great delusion. As we will be reminded this morning, there is still a great delusion going on. It didn't end there, and it wasn't just with the Jewish persons. There's thousands, probably millions of persons who are deluded into thinking that their eternal destiny is assured because they're in church, or because of their birth, or because of their cultural or religion or some other external practice. I mean, I was born into a Christian family, so surely... I am saved. Well, in Matthew 8, Jesus uses the great faith of a Gentile centurion to highlight to the Jews in Capernaum and for us today the darkness of this lie and the great need we have to put our faith in Christ alone for the hope of eternal life, for entrance into the kingdom of God, for becoming a true disciple of Jesus Christ and a true citizen of the kingdom of heaven. Read along with me, if you would, Matthew 8, beginning in verse 5. And when Jesus entered Capernaum, the centurion came to him, imploring him, and saying, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, fearfully tormented. Jesus said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion said, Lord, I am not worthy for you to come under my roof. But just say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I also am a man under authority, with soldiers under me, and I say to this one, go, and he goes. To another, come, and he comes. And to my slave, do this, 
And he does it. Now, when Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who were following, Truly I say to you, I have not found such great faith with anyone in Israel. I say to you that many will come from the east and from the west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the sons of this kingdom will be cast into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And Jesus said to the centurion, Go, it shall be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed that very moment. Pray with me as we enter into our study this morning. Father, as we approach this text and we look at this miracle that was done a couple thousand years ago, may we not breeze over it or quickly miss the point. Help us to understand why your spirit has preserved it for so long, why you moved upon Matthew to write and record this story in this way. That we would be faithful doers of your word, not merely hearers. That we are not here to be entertained by stories and miracles and amusing recounts. But, Father, that we would recognize your sovereignty. The eternal truths that are there for us. The sharp and somewhat harsh reminders of what awaits those who remain deluded and thinking that they are safe from hell and consequences of life apart from you. Father, help us in our own sin, the sin that deludes us and even those of us who are citizens of your kingdom who keep us from enjoying the sweetness of the fellowship. Father, help us to focus our minds, our attention this morning. Lay aside the distractions as we come to your word, and may we submit to its authority. In your name, amen. This morning we return to the second of three healing miracles that Matthew presents after Jesus concludes the Sermon on the Mount. As we noted last week, Matthew summarized, and you may remember, he summarized Jesus' teaching and healing ministry back in Matthew 4.23, where he said that Jesus went about proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom of God and healing every kind of sickness and disease as he went around Galilee. Matthew then finished and has just finished presenting for us probably the premium, the premier example of what this teaching looked like via the Sermon on the Mount. And so Matthew is now selecting and carefully selecting examples of the healing ministry of Jesus. These miracles are more than just offhand first, that came, first examples that came to mind. Matthew's Selection of miracles, these miracles specifically, help us to see and helps to highlight the Messiahship, that is, the promised Savior, the promised ruler of Israel, by means of the authority Jesus has and the broad reach of his ministry. It also includes and highlights his outreach to the outcast, to the Gentile, to the marginalized of society. In fact, by first focusing on the healing of a leper that we observed last week, we saw not simply the authority Jesus has over sickness and disease, but the overcoming of the stigma of uncleanness 
The great compassion that he displays towards those who are weary and heavy laden in this life. As Jesus promised in Matthew 11, 28-29, he is gentle and lowly and gives rest to those who are weary in this life. That rest is found in the life to come. So as we turn our attention to this second example Matthew provides, we note that it's one of these three miracles illustrating that authority and that power of the Messiah. And these illustrations, if you read them through, they're presented in, in quick succession of one another, one after the other. First a leper, then a Gentile centurion, and then a woman. The purpose of the miracle last week and the purpose of the miracle this week is to specify to make clear that entrance into the kingdom of heaven is not on the basis of social or familial standing, but it is on the basis of faith. Last week we observed the faith and petition and the worship of the leper, and this week we're observing the faith and the petition of the Gentile centurion. Matthew tells us that there in verses 5-7 through seven, that when Jesus entered Capernaum, which is on the, on the northern part of the Sea of Galilee, remember this is part of the Galilean ministries, he's going around preaching and teaching. He's spent a few hours, we spent 30 weeks, he only spent a few hours up on that mountain teaching that day. He then came down from the mountainside and began going throughout the cities. Here he has entered the city of Capernaum in the region of Galilee. And as he enters the city and goes throughout the city, a centurion comes to him, imploring him. This is the language of prayer. This is the language of request. This is the language of entreaty. Now, you likely know what a Roman centurion is. But just in case, they were over a cohort of troops in the Roman army, usually about 80 strong, at times up to 100 However, what was not common was for a centurion to ask a Jew for help. That was beneath them. In fact, quite the opposite. Instead, Roman officers would frequently demand, sometimes press Jews into temporary service for the empire. In fact, this became such a problem with the local populace that the Roman Senate would frequently have to reprimand soldiers and officers and send off notes saying, stop it because of the unrest you are creating as they would try to force the populace into doing or performing whatever action they desired as frequently or as often as they would request it. You can imagine the inconveniences would create. You've got mothers trying to prepare a meal and they are told instead to carry the water from the well to the Roman soldiers and they never make it home with what's needed to finish preparing the meal. Or men on their way home from work being asked instead to carry things for the Romans and they get back late, late in the evening, barely able to get up the next morning when they're day laborers in and of themselves to provide for the family. This was the normal course for a Roman to demand and to expect. But we don't see that here. We don't see this type of attitude. It lets us know right away that there is something unique, there is something different about this centurion. We see him imploring, begging. But what is he pleading over? For what is he begging? Well, the centurion had a servant whom he effectually refers to as my boy or my son. That this is his servant is clear from the telling in Luke 7 of the same account which uses the word for slave. And yet here Matthew highlights that the words, the description the centurion uses for this slave is 
a much, in, much more endearing, familial term of my son or the lad. And this slave was lying paralyzed. And it was a severe affliction, as can be seen by the description here. He was fearfully tormented. In other words, this wasn't painless paralysis. It was incredibly painful, excruciating. But he could do nothing but lie there in this pain. And it was creating now emotional pain for the centurion who cared deeply for this slave. As he had to watch him endure this. Desiring some way of alleviating it. You can imagine that he's tried other things up to this point. But now... He comes to Jesus and says, my slave is paralyzed, fearfully tormented. We don't know the cause, but it was painful, it was severe, and the centurion was distraught over the state of his slave. And once again, like the leper last week, we learn much from the centurion's plea itself. Note first that he says, Lord. Now, there can be a broad meaning associated with the term Lord. It could be as simple and as benign as Sir, much more common here in the South. We just refer to someone as Sir. But it worked its way up and as a form of respect, all the way up to the point where it was frequently used to describe your address to a deity or to a divine being. Given the context, and given the fact that the centurion, and we see it there in verse 8, he repeats the phrase, sir, or Lord, with the expectation that we see there of the centurion, and the analogy he gives of authority, we recognize right away that his use of sir, or Lord here, was not benign. It was quite purposeful. He was using it with reference to Jesus as the Messiah and healer, as king. His deferential and reverent address marks the entirety of this interaction and story. The centurion recognizes his place and is appealing as the lesser now to the greater, which again is remarkable in and of itself. The centurion appealing to this transient Jew who's moving about as the greater. This deference becomes even more apparent as the story continues. Secondly, note that the centurion had great compassion for his slave. He's not coming on his own behalf or seeking his own benefit. He's coming desiring the relief of this sickness for the benefit of the slave. This is no ordinary centurion. He shows great compassion, tenderness, mercy. Luke 7 tells us that this centurion was already a God-fearing man. In fact, you learn a little bit more about him in Luke 7, 1 through 10. This man had helped build the synagogue in Capernaum. He had treated the Jewish people well, so much so that Luke actually depicts the elders coming on behalf, the elders of the city coming on behalf of the centurion to make this plea. Watch here as we see the faith of this centurion unfolded. Notice how Jesus responds. What does he say? Most translations, probably the one you have in front of you, has Jesus responding, I will come and heal him. It's a perfectly legitimate translation with the grammar. However, the use of I here is emphatic. It's I myself, if you will. And when it's placed where it is in the text, 
It can alternatively be translated as more of a question or a statement of incredulity. In other words, Jesus is responding, and this is how I believe the text should be read, are you a Gentile asking me, the Messiah of Israel, to come to your house to heal your slave? In other words, are you really asking me to come and heal him? And there's several reasons, and the context seems to dictate that. The grammar certainly indicates that. And notice that the centurion himself had not yet made a request. It says he's coming and treating. You know that there's a desire he has, but he doesn't outright ask for it. He shows that continued deferential language. Much like the leper who came saying, you are able if you desire, but he doesn't outright say, heal me. Even though I believe Jesus is saying here, are you really asking that me, the Messiah of Israel, would go into a Gentile's house? I in no way think Jesus was reluctant to heal. In fact, in Luke 7, Jesus sets out immediately for the centurion's house before the centurion stops him. And we see the interaction we see in verse 8. However, Jesus is doing something important here. And it's again why I think that there is something of a question stated there. It wasn't a question because Jesus didn't want to come. It was a question because he wants to highlight a particular aspect of this interchange in this narrative here. He's, Jesus is doing something important. And Matthew emphasizes this. And his emphasis also accounts for somewhat of the differences, not the discrepancies, but the differences in how Matthew and Luke relate this story. As well as the specific details they provide, or one may provide, the other may pass over as each is telling the story. You see, Matthew is focusing upon the belief of the centurion and wants to draw that out. And then he wants to draw out the indictment that this belief of the centurion is upon unbelieving, deluded Israel. Whereas Luke's emphasis is upon the character of the centurion and the Gentile belief. So why would Jesus do this? Why would Jesus act incredulous and ask this question of the centurion? Well, for one, Jesus is highlighting the uniqueness of this request. He wants everyone to think and recognize that it is a Gentile that is asking me to do this. Part of the reason this is so strange is that like touching a leper, and we'd seen previously, entering the home of a Gentile would also make one unclean. Because the Gentile's dwelling was considered unclean by Jewish standards. For example, we read in John 18, 28, that after they had taken Jesus into custody, they led him from Caiaphas into the praetorium, and it was early, but they themselves, that is, the religious leaders who had taken him, taken him captive, did not enter into the praetorium, so that they would not be defiled, but might eat the Passover. They wouldn't step place or step foot into a Gentile assembly or Gentile dwelling. Or you have in Acts 10, 28, statement, you yourselves know that it is unlawful for a man who is a Jew to associate with a foreigner or to visit him. And God has shown me that I should not call any man unholy or unclean. And it's Peter. And so it was understood that a Gentile, this is first off a Gentile, highlighting that fact. And secondly, as soon as you highlight that it's a Gentile, and you highlight that are you really asking me to come into your home, that something special is being requested here. It is a Gentile asking me to do something that would make me now unclean. 
This was no ordinary request, or at least it doesn't appear to be an ordinary request. So the uniqueness is certainly part of it. But again, it wasn't just because of the cultural taboo or oddity that Jesus highlights this. It was primarily because Jesus is setting the stage for the surrounding crowds to see the great faith of this Gentile. A faith that Jesus already knew he possessed. See, Jesus isn't surprised by any of this. He already knows the answers. He already knows the faith of this Gentile. He pauses because he wants everyone else to understand this faith. Jesus does a similar thing in Matthew 15, where he responds to that Canaanite woman who came to him and asked for healing. And he did it in order to elicit a response that publicly displayed her great faith. In fact, turn with me, if you would, to Matthew 15, 21 through 28. Just a few pages over in your Bibles. Down in verse 21 of chapter 15, you read that Jesus went away from there and he withdrew into the district of Tyre and Sidon. And a Canaanite woman from that region came out and began to cry out, saying, Have mercy on me, Lord, son of David. Notice, by the way, her use of Lord there and son of David again shows the messianic significance of the term Lord that these Gentiles were associating with the term. Son of David, my daughter is cruelly demon-possessed. But he did not answer her a word. Was it because Jesus is uncaring, lacks compassion? Not at all. I mean, we saw that last week. He reaches out and touches a leper, one who had not experienced physical human touch since at least the time he began to exhibit the symptoms of leprosy. We know that he cares. We know that he's compassionate. He weeps over Jerusalem when he gets ready to approach the city because of the great unbelief. He cares greatly for persons. So why would he do this? Why was he ignoring this woman? Well, keep reading. His disciples came and implored him, send her away because she keeps shouting at us. She is annoying. Get rid of her. But he answered and said, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came again and began to bow down before him saying, Lord, help me. Again, is it because he has no compassion? Look what he does. He answered and said, it is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she said, and this is what he wanted to be highlighted. This is why he asked these questions. This is why he didn't respond at first. It was to highlight her faith. Look at how she responds. But then she said, yes, Lord. There's no argument. There's no rebuttal. Yes, you're exactly right. That's how unworthy I am. But even the dogs feed on the crumbs which fall from their master's table. Then Jesus said to her, oh, woman, your faith is great. It shall be done for you as you wish. And her daughter was healed at once. You see Jesus' interaction there. The reason for the questions, the reason to appear at first incredulous. And it's to draw out the faith of these Gentiles. And he does it here, as Matthew is going to go on to show us, to highlight the unbelief of Israel. 
Jesus has set the scene. He's asked the question. It's a question that demands an answer. So how does the centurion respond? Well, like the Canaanite woman, the centurion responds with immediate deference. We again see him use that same expression of Lord. But this time he goes even further. He offers no rebuttal, no counter to Jesus' question and what is implied by the question. Instead, he wholeheartedly agrees with it and announces not just to Jesus, but to everyone around, yes, you are right, I am indeed unworthy. Like John, who did not even consider himself worthy to untie the lace of Jesus' sandal, this Gentile centurion does not consider himself worthy for Jesus' shadow to even fall upon his doorstep. So he says to Jesus and to the surrounding crowds, I am not worthy. But he has a solution. And that solution is grounded and rooted in his great faith and the recognition that this is the Messiah, the promised Savior. This Gentile centurion suggests that all Jesus needs to do is say the word. Just speak and the servant will be healed. Now throughout Jesus' ministry of healing or performing a miracle at a distance, you need to understand this was extremely rare. In fact, up to this point, it is unlikely, it is possible that there was a similar account in John 4 that could have happened before this, but it's not even, even that's not certain. Up to this point, Jesus may have done no healing whatsoever that was from a distance. He was certainly capable of it, but it was not common. It was uncommon. Very rare. There's only two accounts at all in Scripture. Interestingly, they both happened in Capernaum. But this expression of faith and this solution to the dilemma of the Gentile centurion's unworthiness was remarkable. He says, I know what you've done, and I know how much more you can do because you are the Messiah. we see how remarkable his response is because of Jesus' response in verse 10. Jesus marveled. By the way, this is the same term that the crowds had after his teaching at the end of chapter 7 when they were astonished. Jesus, in his humanity, expresses the same human emotion of amazement. But before we move into his amazement, I want to note something about the humility of the centurion and his request or prayer to Jesus. I think it's important that we stop and we note this now and not wait while it's still fresh. One of the reasons persons are so discontent in this life, one of the reasons that believers are so discontent is because we have far too elevated a view of ourselves. We go around thinking we are worthy of being treated a certain way. When you think you are worthy of deference, you quickly become irritated and unhappy. And it's a miserable place to be. Always being disappointed because persons do not treat you the way you think you should be treated or think more of you. Or think of you as worthy as you think you are. What we need is more humility in our relationships, in our marriages in our interactions with friends, with colleagues, with coworkers, in politics. 
But let's go a step further. What about your attitude when you come to Christ, when you approach God in prayer? Do you acknowledge your own unworthiness? Or do you approach thinking that you somehow deserve something? On the one hand, we absolutely have a tremendous blessing of approaching God as Father, knowing his desire to bless. But it should not be taken for granted. Nor should this privilege be treated irreverently. Solomon reminds us of the seriousness and sobriety we must have when approaching God in Ecclesiastes 5.2 where he says, Do not be hasty in word or impulsive in thought to bring up a matter in the presence of God. For God is in heaven, you are on earth, let your words be few. Be careful how you approach God. So do we have a proper perspective of ourselves? One that says, I'm not worthy. Going back to those beatitudes that we continue to find ourselves returning to, those marks of a citizen of the kingdom of God, do you exhibit meekness, spiritual poverty? Do you think of others as more important than yourselves? This type of humility that the centurion displays, that recognizes one's unworthiness, will then turn around and give God the praise, the thanksgiving, and the deference that's due. It recognizes that God doesn't grant us access or enter our prayers on the basis of our awesomeness, how worthy we are, but on the basis of his great love for his son. And because his son shed his blood, that precious blood now stands as an atonement for our sins and gives us access to the Father. And as a result, we can approach God in confidence, acknowledging at the same time our unworthiness and praising God that we can yet approach him as beloved children. So there's an important reminder here to take the example of the centurion and remember our unworthiness in prayer and in life, in our interpersonal relationships. Well, as we've already noted, Jesus responds to the expression of faith and humility of the centurion in amazement. This amazement is as much, though, for the crowd's benefit as it is for the centurion, because Jesus' amazement highlights a painful reality for Israel. As Jesus addresses the great delusion that has overcome the nation. In verses 10 through 12, Jesus quickly dismantles the false hope of Israel, and he does it by noting that he has not found faith like this with anyone else in all of Israel. And remember the sting this would have had to those hearers, because he just went to great efforts to highlight this is a Gentile, one you consider unclean. Notice, too, that though Jesus says he has found no such believing faith in all Israel, which would lead us to believe that, well, I guess he's going to be alone in heaven, or nearly. Quite the contrary, this Gentile, far from being alone, that there will be many who now come from the east and the west and feast and fellowship with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. In other words, while Israel may reject the Messiah, Many non-Israelites will enter the kingdom. 
This inclusion of Gentiles should not have been a novel concept to Israel. But sadly, because of the the teaching of the religious leaders and the legalism and the isolationism that Israel had developed, they created more and more of an exclusive and exclusionist view toward Gentiles, that is, anyone who is not a Jew. And yet, if they had just read their Old Testament, if they just read Isaiah, with ears to hear and eyes to see, they would have seen texts like Psalm 107. Turn with me there. Psalm 107, which reads there, the first verse, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his loving kindness is everlasting. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so whom he has redeemed from the hand of the adversary and gathered from the lands, that is, from the many lands, from the east and from the west, from the north and from the south. This theme runs throughout all the scripture we read it this morning. Turn to Isaiah 43. And reading just a sampling of what we've already read this morning. Reminded in verse 3, For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I have given Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba in your place, since you are precious in my sight, since you are honored and I love you. I will give men in your place and peoples in exchange for your life. Do not fear, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east and gather you from the west and will say to the north, Give them up and to the south, do not hold them back. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Everyone, not just Jew, everyone who is called by my name, whom I have created for my glory, whom I formed, even whom I have made. After the promise of Gentile salvation, an inclusion that Jesus offers here in Matthew 8 when he talks about the many coming from these lands from the east and the west, the north and the south to dine with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in heaven. We next see the indictment of Israel. This isn't just that everybody gets to be at the party. No, there's an indictment here as well. In the very next breath, Jesus provides a sobering message to Israel, to the other 99% of those gathered around listening to his message that day in Capernaum. And it is a sobering warning concerning the hard-heartedness of Israel. And the message is simply this, you have been deceived. Though you call yourselves sons of the kingdom, you will now find no welcome You will be banished to the outer darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. Jesus puts this in stark relief in Matthew 22. You can turn with me there as well. There in Matthew 22, beginning in verse 1. Jesus spoke to them again in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. He sent out his slaves to call all those who had been invited to the wedding feast, and they were unwilling to come. Again, he sent out other slaves, saying, Tell those who have been invited, Behold, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen, my fattened livestock, 
All are butchered. Everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went their way. One to his own farm, another to his business. The rest seized his slaves, mistreated them, and killed them. But the king was enraged. He sent his armies. He destroyed those murderers, set their city on fire. Then he said to his slaves, the wedding is ready. But those who were invited were not worthy. Notice that language. Go therefore to the main hideaways. As many as you find there. By the way, the main highways. These are the highways in Israel that all of the Gentiles traveled through. The main highways. There, there were a number of highways. There was the Via Maris. There was the King's Highway. There were these routes that they would pass through what was called the Levant of Israel. Israel was the highway of the nations. The nations would travel through them. These are the main highways. Go out into these highways where the Gentiles are. And as many as you find there, invite them to the wedding feast. The slaves went out into the streets. They gathered together all they found, both evil and good. And the wedding hall was filled with dinner guests. But when the king came in and looked over the dinner guests, he saw a man there who was not dressed in wedding clothes. In other words, he was there for some other purpose. He said to a friend, how did you come in here without wedding clothes? The man was speechless. He had no answer. The king said to his servants, bind him hand and foot, throw him into the outer darkness, in that place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. Just a few weeks ago, we reminded of the broad way and the narrow way. The broad gate and the narrow gate. And how there are few who find it. The Jews that were convinced that their Jewishness was enough to save them and guarantee them entrance into the kingdom of heaven. Jesus arrives and he turns that on its head. Not only does Jesus include Gentiles in the feast, but he highlights the fact that many who are Jews by birth will not be at the feast. They will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. As Paul writes in Romans 2.29, he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter, and his praise is not from men, but from God. Later in Romans 9, 6 through 8, but it is not as though the word of God has failed, for they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel, nor are they all children because they are Abraham's descendants. But through Isaac, your descendants will be named. That is, it is not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but children of the promise are regarded as descendants. It is wise for us this morning to take this warning to heart. Because not that we are Jewish, and we've been deluded into thinking our Jewishness protects us, because there are many in the church today who call themselves Christians because of their cultural upbringing, because of their family upbringing, but who are not born of the Spirit. As one commentator writes, the damnation of those who thought themselves destined for the kingdom sounded a sober warning to nationalistic Jews of Matthew's day, just as it should sound a warning to the complacent churchgoers of today. Jesus' call to belief is one that is followed by action. 
Do your actions demonstrate belief in Jesus as the Savior of the world, much like the centurion? His actions demonstrated his belief. Do you really believe all that Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount regarding your sin, your needing for repentance, and the expectations that then fall upon you as a disciple of Jesus Christ? Not to become a disciple, but as a disciple. So my question for you is, who do you resemble this morning? The centurion or complacent Israel? Who think that as long as they are Jewish, they will enter the kingdom of heaven. As long as I go to church, as long as I don't step too far outside of God's will, as long as I don't, you fill in the blank, then I'm assured the kingdom of heaven. There are many in the world today who think their proximity to the church, proximity to true believers, is enough to save them. When the reality is that what awaits them is the outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. In fact, if this is you, then repent of your sins this morning. Call out to Jesus as the only hope you have for eternal life. This life will end that you are currently living. That is an absolute certainty. Are you prepared for the life to come? If you're not, then this darkness, this eternal sorrow is all that awaits you after this life. But the good news is that Jesus offers life to all who repent of their sins and trust in him. So choose this day whom you're going to serve. After closing with the sobering statement concerning the eternal destiny of those who die deluded into thinking that anything other than their faith in God will save, Matthew closes by observing Jesus' answer to the centurion's plea. Jesus heals the slave. The healing was immediate. There was no opportunity to suggest it was medicine or any other source other than Jesus' words alone. The centurion had located Jesus' authority in what his words could accomplish. Jesus, according to the writer of Hebrews, upholds all things by the word of his power. John tells us in John 1 that Jesus was with God in the beginning. Nothing came into being apart from him. We know that in Genesis 1 and 2, all creation came into being by the word of God. The centurion's testimony is also a foreshadowing of the later testimony of John, who describes Jesus as the word, and later in Revelation as Alpha and Omega. That is the summation, the first and the last letter of the Greek alphabet. In other words, everything that could be communicated in the language, the common language of the day, all wisdom, all thoughts, all knowledge, everything that could be said was encompassed from A to Z. Rearrange those letters any way you want, and as many times as you want, you can say everything that there is that can be said, and Jesus is that and more. He's the summation of all words, language, and speech. All wisdom, all knowledge, all power find their source in Jesus Christ. In this way, perhaps the centurion spoke better than he knew, but here's what he didn't know, that Jesus was able to save. And the reason for that belief was rooted in the Messiahship of Jesus Christ, the promised Son of God who was sent to deliver his people and all who would call upon his name from every tribe, every tongue, and every nation. 
Just as the leper's disease last week was a poignant reminder of the effect of sin, so the paralysis of the servant is a reminder of the solution for sin. The paralytic could do nothing to help himself. And so we are unable to do anything to help ourselves other than cry out for help. We cannot forgive our own sins. We cannot wash away our own sins. We cannot heal ourselves. Our only hope is in approaching the throne of God in humility, acknowledging our unworthiness, our spiritual poverty, and our need for God's mercy each and every day. May we demonstrate that humility and faith, the humility and faith of the centurion, the most unexpected person in the crowd that day. In dealing with our sin and seeking to live as faithful disciples and citizens of the kingdom of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the example of this centurion that day. We thank you that you chose him and you began that work long before that day came about. That that interaction would stand as an example, an example to Israel. Father, we don't know how many came to belief because of that example, but we do know it stood as an example, or how many through the ages have come to faith because of reading this account from Matthew. Father, if there are any here this morning who have not put their faith in you, I pray that they would be convicted of their sin, that they, like the paralyzed slave, would live in agony. Not because of any hatred, but because out of love. Love for them that they would experience eternity in heaven. Eternity in your presence. Eternity, eternity at the banquet table. Father, we thank you for the reminder it is to us. Those that are citizens, that long for and yearn for the life to come that we would walk faithfully before you. Father, even now we cannot wash ourselves. We must confess and be washed by your blood. Thank you for these reminders this morning. In your name, amen.